Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. Uh, turn with me in your Bible, Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 1, because what I want to share with you today is a message you've heard before. In fact, it's a message that I try to weave in every single year because it has to do with the core values of our church. What are we about as a, as a people, as a, a body of believers, as a congregation? What are some of the core tenets that we believe? See, our mission here at New Freedom is to be real people experiencing real freedom. Now, freedom is not just a word, a buzzword. Uh, it, it is more than an ideal. It is a goal and it is a dream. And Jesus came to set us free from the curse of the law of sin and death. And Galatians 5.1 says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So what does this uh, real people look like? It means that we have hurts, we have habits, we have hangups. We are people that are not trying to put on a Christian facade on the outside that we are somehow perfect and we never have any kind of faulting or or failures or we don't uh, relate with someone who is uh, having difficulties. We're real. We have difficulties. There are things that happen in our lives, things that happen to our families, things that we have to navigate with. We're real people. But we are also experiencing this very real freedom that Jesus Jesus died to set us free, and he causes us to be free by this next point, 2 Corinthians 3.17. This is the foundational verse of which our church was founded on. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you didn't get a, a chance to experience it last week, we had a time of freedom around the Lord's Supper Uh, around taking of corporate communion together, around kneeling down and serving one another through foot washing. Our children had so much uh, 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 questions about that last week. I had called at the end of service for uh, the kids' church to come on in and and let the kids come in and and see the worship and the serving. They had so many questions about it that today they're getting another lesson. They're getting kind of uh, some background lesson right now on that type of serving in our church as they saw witnessed here. But we have been given, we've been granted by God this great opportunity to be free people. And here's the the, the express marker about people who have walked and are walking in freedom, is that there is something on the inside that compels us to desire other people also to be free. We want to see other people who are bound by the, the weight and the shackles of sin and shame and guilt. We want them to know that same liberty in Christ. We want them to experience that same freedom. And this is part of the core values of our church. So what is a core? Well, a core is the central part of a fruit that contains the seeds. And so it is the central or most important part of the fruit. If you were to get down to the core of what New Freedom Church is all about, these four values, faithfulness, relationships, experiencing, and equipping, they're on signs and billboards in our hallway, but they're more than that. They're emblazoned in the DNA of what we feel like we are called to do in and around this community. And this is something that is near and dear to my heart. And I want to talk to you this morning about the core value of relationship. Everybody say relationship. So our core value of relationship revolves around this. We relate to God through worship. We relate to God through our worship. Now, 
we only have a couple times a week that we actually gather corporately for worship in a building. But worship is something that we do. It was a well that, that uh, Jacob had actually dug uh, 15, 1800 years prior. And Jesus meets a woman. We know her as the woman at the well. And so this dialogue ensues, and we have an entire chapter in the book of John dealing with this woman at the well. And there's some, some things that really stand out to me in this text that I want us to capture because it has everything, hear me, everything to do with relationship. Relationship in this text is in how that Jesus reveals to her that he is not beyond and above fellowshipping and relating to the people who are lowly on the socioeconomic rung or maybe the outcasts of society. And if it was good enough for Jesus to reach out to the least, then it should be an example for us to say, okay, we can get our proverbial hands dirty. We can get down and we can serve someone. We can get on someone else's level because we know personally what it's like to have been shackled and burdened with weight of guilt and shame and sin and transgression. We understand, those of us who have been set free by Jesus know exactly what it's like to have been tainted by this world. We're not putting on airs that we're so good that we've never sinned all of our little own lives. No, we understand what it's like to have been captured by the grip and the chain of sin, and yet now we have been given this great freedom. But I wanna, I wanna look at two verses specific today in this text, John 4, Verses 23 and 24. Now, the setup to these texts is Jesus now has asked this woman for a drink of water. And Jesus shouldn't have been there at this time of the day uh, with her. This was her time to come so that nobody else would see that she's there. Uh, a Jew should not have been there at this time. She's a Samaritan. And so Jesus asked her for a, a drink of water. And they have this dialogue about where are you going to get water if you don't have anything to draw with? And Jesus offers her living water. But look what the response is in verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is. Here, here's the way the Bible's written. Jesus is, is giving us this anticipation moment. He's saying, you know, the hour's coming. Now, actually, the hour now is. It has arrived. It has been in work. It's been in progress. The hour is coming. No, it's now is when true worshipers, everybody say true worshipers, not those who just give lip service, not those who just take a little bit of time out of their schedule and say, yeah, I guess I'll honor God with, I'll grace God by going to church today. I guess no, no true worshipers have this deep seated desire, whether it's Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Friday, whatever day it is, true worshipers have this, I am going to sing forth the praises of him who called me out of darkness and draw me into his marvelous light. The hour is coming. No, Jesus said it is when true worshipers will worship the father, how? In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. But then he elaborates a little further. Don't you love it when the Bible gives commentary to the Bible? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the very God who is eliciting this worship is the spirit that is also honored and glorified and, and moving through this worship. Now, these were revolutionary words because this woman is now getting a revelation 
that there is something that has now seismically shifted, something that has changed, because she thought that in order to worship God, the Jews, they had to go to Jerusalem. There was a temple in Jerusalem. That's where the Jews went to worship. They had this dialogue already. You can read it in John chapter 4. And she thought, well, the Jews go there, but we worship at the mountain. We Samaritans, we outcasts, those of us who have not reached the spiritual apex of our lives, those of us who are looked down upon, we have a different locale. The, the location we worship is at this mountain. Now, the well was at the base in between the mountain that she worshiped at and the city of Jerusalem, the town that Jesus should have worshiped at. So this well had nothing to do with worship. And yet Jesus has this conversation with her about true and spirited and, and uh, uh, I guess you would say, uh, heartfelt worship at this well. Now, it's interesting when you read this text that this woman has something revealed about her life when Jesus said, yeah, uh, the water that I give, if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. But if you drink of the water in this well, this Jacob's well, this spring-fed well, you're going to be thirsty again. And she said, I don't even know of the water you speak of. And Jesus said, the water I give you shall flow in you rivers of life. What was he speaking about? He was speaking of the Holy Spirit. He was not speaking about a, a physical drink of water. Rather, it was a spiritual slake of his spirit in her soul. It was going to satisfy her thirst, her spiritual thirst. And what Jesus is doing is he's getting into a spiritual relationship with someone who was far off, someone who did not think that God could be worshiped just anywhere. There were geographic locations. Jesus is now entering into a spiritual relationship with her. I, I like the, the Passion Bible translation in this, these same verses. It says this, Jesus said, from now on, Worshiping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but with a right heart. Get this. From now on, don't worry about whether you're in the temple or you're on the mountain. Worshiping the Father will not be about a right place, but a right heart. For God is spirit, and he longs to have sincere worshipers who adore him in the realm of spirit and truth. So let me ask you, where, where do we need to worship God? In church? in our home, at Kroger, at Walmart, in your home, while you're driving on the road behind that slow driver who doesn't use their blinker. Yes, that is exactly where you need to worship God in spirit and truth. And you can't go to the Bible and say, lay hands on them suddenly. Like, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, don't be cherry picking verses in your moments of frustration. The true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. And here's what Jesus reveals to her. It's no longer about the right place, but it's about the right heart. It is about relationship. We relate to God through our worship. Jesus told this woman, uh, go and call your husband, have him come. And she said, oh, there's a problem. Uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband because you've been married five times and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Jaw drop moment. Now she just had her mail read. She truly looked at Jesus and said, you must be a prophet because you didn't even know me, but you know all about me. And here's what happens with the word of God. When you read the word of God, the word of God starts to read you. It starts to reveal things about you. Now the Bible never just throws out numbers by happenstance. There, there, there are significance to numbers. And so this woman had had five 
husbands. In some commentaries, they will say that uh, this is all of us getting in touch with our five senses. There are classically five senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, hearing. We, we have these senses. And so her life long had been used by drinking from the, the well of Jacob, which was tainted by all of the, the history and the past checkered past of Israel. And, and Jacob, I mean, certainly was not a stand-up character when he was named Jacob. He got a name changed later to Israel, but this was Jacob's well. He dug this well. She'd been drinking of this. And so five represents how that she was relying on her own strength. And and the number six in scripture always represents man because man was made on the sixth day. And so the man she was living with was the sixth person that she was in what relationship with. But now she was talking with the seventh man, the one that is complete, the one that is God's number. And the number seven, she was talking with Jesus and he revealed to her something. Don't worry about your senses. Don't look at those five. And that sixth thing, that, that male thing, that, that fleshly thing, don't worry about that area of your life, but you need to get a revelation of something brand new. And here's what she does. She goes and tells the entire town, you need to come out to the well. You need to meet have relationship with, you need to get connected to this prophet, to this one who told me, here's what she says, all things I have ever done. Now, do we see that in the Bible? We don't see that Jesus said all things she'd ever done, but there was some revealing part. She was so laid bare of heart when she came into true worship and relationship with Jesus. And our relationships are so vitally important. It's how we connect and we relate to God. But here's, here's the, the other uh, theme I want you to see about this passage is that Jesus chose relationship over rules. Everybody say relationship over rules. There were 10 commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But by the time that Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, there were now 613 laws or rules that had been created from those original 10. Jesus boils those 10 down in fact, he boils all the 613 down to two, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus stayed true to the 10 commandments or the spirit of the 10 commandments, which were love God and love others. But Jesus broke rules in order to win the battle for a heart. Now watch this. Jesus does this time and time again. And for those of us who are self-ascribed rule followers like me, that we have orderly put our lives together to follow the right rules, we can sometimes cause a hiccup, an impediment, or maybe a standoff from a connect relationship, a correct relationship, because we want the rules to be followed and someone else is not following the rules. Now, here's what Jesus does. He transcends the rules. He shouldn't have been at the well at this moment talking to this woman. This wasn't the time of day for a good Jew to be there. She probably thought he was propositioning her because there would be another reason a man would want to be there at the time, but actually he was offering her life everlasting. He went beyond the rules to encounter her in relationship. Jesus' disciples were walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. They were hungry, of course, they were walking. Number one, they had already broken a rule because they were walking, doing work, physical labor, according to Jewish custom. They should not even been doing that on the Sabbath, but they were. 
because they were heading to their next stop, place to minister. And they began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat it on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees caught wind of this and they asked Jesus, they said, hey, wait a minute here, Jesus, your disciples, they have broken the rules of Sabbath. They have worked on Sabbath and they're eating what is unlawful. They're actually stealing in that field. And Jesus looked at them and here's what he said. Was man made for the Sabbath or was Sabbath made for man? See, they had been living in such a rule-dominated, rule-based culture, a mindset that if they would just do uh, all the 613 things, it didn't matter what was in their heart. They could have retribution and hate and lust and greed and all kinds of things clogged up in their heart. But as long as on the outside, they were following the rules, they were checking the boxes, then they were straight and narrow. That's what they thought. But Jesus went to the deeper part of it and he said, no, no, no. What really matters is a heart condition. For he revealed to this woman, the time has, is coming, but it is actually here. The time now is when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. It is a relational worship. And relationship is a core value in New Freedom Church. Do the Ten Commandments matter? Yes, they matter. People say, well, uh, you know, I don't want to live under the old law. Usually what they mean are the ceremonial laws, the, the, the customs of Israel of the day. I would venture to say that most people in our society, even now, would highly subscribe the Ten Commandments. You ask them, do you like people to lie to you? Do you enjoy it when people cheat you? Do you like it when someone is, is envying your goods or would try to get with your spouse? No, we, don't, we, don't, we understand those are not kosher in a culture that is civilized or that is even decent. And so we highly subscribe to those, but yet we have all of these other rules, all of these other things that we have added to our Christian testimony, all these other things that people need to toe the line. And Jesus just transcended all of that. And he went beyond the rules in order to preserve a relationship. How about this? Jesus routinely as a rabbi was breaking the rules when he was around sick people. And then he would even have the audacity to touch their bodies while they were sick, which would by default make him ceremonially unclean, yet he was about the relationship of the healing for their body. Jesus even would be not only around dead people, but he rose people from the dead by touching them. Jesus was found to be teaching in the house of Martha and Mary, and Mary was sitting at his feet. Jesus was teaching a woman. That was a no-no in that day. And yet Jesus broke the rule in order to establish the relationship. But it goes on a little further than that. We see in Acts that Peter, a rule follower, Peter, the, the uh, uh, disciple who, you know, he wanted to know all the rules because he wanted to follow them so that he could please Jesus. Yet he broke them all the time, but, you know, Peter, he made it right. Peter in the book of Acts has this, this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. And he's sleeping and he, he has this vision. And those of you who have ever been to our breakfast and you like bacon, you're going to like this vision. Because at that time, they couldn't eat anything that was unclean and a pig was an unclean animal. And so here's the vision. He sees in this sheet all these unclean animals coming down and the Lord says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter wants to dispute and he wants to have this dialogue and say, no, God, I will not eat that. That is unclean. According to the rules, I should not touch those unclean things. He was a rule keeper. He was a rule follower, right? But 
this was a revelation that God was now opening up the message to the Gentiles who the Jews had considered unclean, a people who they didn't think could be redeemed, the Gentiles. And God was now opening up this salvic message, this message of deliverance and freedom to an entire group of people that previously hadn't been exposed to it. And so instead of following the rules, Peter was given a bypass for the purpose of relationship. And the Lord said to Peter, do, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. Otherwise, he was opening up the opportunity, not just for the message to go to the Jews, but to go to the Gentiles. What was Peter doing? He was being told by the Spirit of God to bypass his man-made rules in order to establish relationship. We relate with God in the way that we worship. The Apostle Paul had a great controversy when he also was called to the Gentiles the apostle to the Gentiles, the evangelist to go and to, to establish churches all over the known world, most of which were Gentile churches. But Paul, being a Jew, knew that there was a problem with people who were Gentiles becoming Christians, and that was that there was this debate over circumcision. That all good Jews knew you had to be circumcised, the cutting away of your flesh physically. And there was this big debate, well, do Christians now have to go back and be circumcised? What about an adult male man? Does he have to go back and be circumcised in order to become a Christian? Acts chapter 15, you can read all about it. And the decision was made that we should not make it hard for those who are coming to Christ, who are coming to God. We should not put rules and barriers upon them coming to God based upon an Old Testament ritual that God has now done away with in the new covenant because circumcision was a sign and a symbol of something that really God wanted to do to our hearts. They that worship him shall worship in spirit and truth and is true worshipers, worship of the heart. So their hearts were what needed to be circumcised, not their bodies. It was a spiritual revelation that relationship is greater than rules. And this was a radical paradigm shift. They had never seen this before. They had never heard this before. But that's how we relate to God is through our worship. So I would just caution us today, do not allow your man-made rules, whatever you think should be the decorum, to stand in the way of going to the highways and hedges and compelling somebody that, yes, the ark of salvation, the ark of safety is open for them as well. Let me move on. We relate with other believers through our fellowship. Acts 2 and 46 so con says this, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. We relate with other believers through our fellowship. How is your fellowship? How is the relationships that you have with other people? Are you in and connected to a small group? Do you have a group of people that you can call upon for prayers? There's someone that you can reach out to when you have a joy, when you have something that you want to share. God's done something in your life. You know, are, there, are there some people that can rejoice with you? How about some people that can also burden, uh, uh, bear a burden and, and shoulder a hurt with you when you're going through something? See, that's where small group happens. You can't do that in rows in a Sunday morning service, but you can do that in small groups and through fellowship. And this is what they did in the early church. And so it is our desire as a congregation that we would connect deeper with one another, that we would connect in small groupings and that we would have opportunities for fellowship with gladness and simplicity of heart. And then number three is you relate with not yet believers through your witness. 
Acts 1 and 8 really succinctly puts this. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A witness simply testifies or tells about what they have seen, what they have heard, or what they have experienced. You might have this notion that, well, pastor, I can't teach a kid's class because I don't have a Bible degree. Pastor, I can't go next door and and witness my neighbor because I don't know the four uh, spiritual laws. I can't go and and talk to my neighbor uh, or talk to my coworker at work because I don't know the Romans road. Well, do you know what God has done for you? If you don't know any Bible verses, do you know what you have experienced? Can you have the same kind of testimony that I once was lost, but now I'm found? I once was blind spiritually, but now I see. I once was far away from God, but now whenever I worship and I stand in the assembly of God, I feel the warm fellowship together with the saints of God that somehow my heart is being warmed because I am accepted. I am in the beloved, that somehow the God of heaven has rescued me, that he loves me, that he has welcomed me into his family. See, that's all you need is just a testimony. What you've seen, what you've heard, what you have experienced And that's how we relate. That is our relationship with what I want to call the not yet believers. You might say this, but what if they don't listen? What if I've been witnessing to my family, witnessing to my friends? I've been witnessing for a long time and they are not picking up on it. They're not not accepting my testimony. Well, let me tell you about the hellhound of abolition which we would better know as John Quincy Adams, former president of the United States. He said this, the duty is up to me, but the result is up to God. And he didn't reference it in his witnessing, but rather uh, he referenced it in the way that his heart was inclined to fight against slavery and for the abolition of slavery in these United States of America. After serving as our sixth president, John Quincy Adams spent, get this, 17 years of his life in the U.S. Congress as a representative. He went from the highest office of the land, retired from that, and went and served 17 years in Congress. Why? Because there was a mission. There was a testimony of witness that he wanted to relate to a sin-sick world. He was called the hellhound of abolition, and he introduced bills year after year to get rid of slavery. But 80% of Congress at the time was pro-slavery, so all of his bills failed. However, John Quincy Adams mentored many young men over the years, and one of them was a young man who took part in his funeral procession. For John Quincy Adams, this man would eventually run all kinds of political office, He would run for local office. He would run for regional office. He would run for high office and lose all of them until finally this young man that he mentored did win one office. He won the highest prize. He became the 16th president of the United States and his name is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln did in fact preside over the end of slavery. All of his years that John Quincy Adams fought for the abolition of slavery, all the bills that he introduced, all the time and effort and energy, the witnessing and the the opportunities that he 
uh, had had on the floor of Congress to try to persuade them to get rid of this heinous practice never came to fruition. Yet he would pass on his desire to another, and he would mentor someone else, and he would share with another. Uh, Younger people that would have the opportunity and the, the longevity that they could continue this same principle. And finally, though he didn't see it himself, the day came when someone was able to outlaw that practice. You may very well be planting seeds of relationship with people in your family, telling them about the goodness and the love of God, but you may never ever see those seeds come to fulfillment in your lifetime. Keep sowing, keep watering, keep planting. Don't let up because you never know when some of those seeds will take place, when some will take root and something beautiful will grow up. There's a mentor relationship that's mentioned in Scripture between Paul and Timothy. And many times I think the reason that we don't enter into relationship with people is because there's a high risk that we're going to get rejected. There's a high risk that all that we will invest may be for naught if they turn and walk away from it. And Paul well understood this. 2 Timothy 1 and 15 says, This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Paul said, I've invested in all of those in Asia, all of this time that I've spent building these relationships, they've turned away from me, among whom are Phagelius and Hermogenes. These men have, have benefited from my ministry, and yet they've walked away from me. And this is the risk, that when you build relationship with people, when you tell people about the Jesus, let me tell you about my Jesus. When you tell them, they may, ah, I don't want to hear that. You're always talking that Christian stuff. I don't, I don't, but you know what? There may come a time when in their heart of hearts, something takes, because here's the reward. The very next verse, 2 Timothy 1.16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he has refreshed me and has not been ashamed of my chain. Here's what Paul said. If at the end of my life, I only have one convert, which he had many more than that. But he said, you know what? At least someone hung with me. At least someone refreshed me. And I'm going to give thanks to God. I'm going to give grace to God. I'm going to give God thanks for the mercy and the blessing of knowing that finally something has taken. Relationship is a core value at our church because we want people to be in relationship with God, but you are compelled to be in relationship with other people. And sometimes that means investing in people who don't vote like you, don't go to church where you go to church, don't think like you, don't believe like you, don't go to the same kind of places you go to. You may be called upon by God through the grace and mercy of God to invest in those people because the time will come when he wants to relate with them. So I wanna ask you in closing, how is it with you in the relationship department? How are you doing relating to God and relating to others? In Israel, there is a stark difference of two bodies of water. I've been there to see both of them, and we read them all throughout the scriptures, and we can easily just pass over. But at the north part of Israel is the Sea of Galilee, beautiful uh, river-fed body of water that is luscious and has all kinds of vegetation and, and uh, teeming with fish, and you can have lots of recreation. But at the south side of the, of the country, there is this other body of water that's called the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. 
It is the saltiest body of water in the world. In fact, in that picture right there, you can see that a, a guy can jump in it, lean back, and you cannot sink. It, is, it has such a salt content, you cannot sink. You just float. I, I did that. I, I jumped in there one, one time when I went to Israel, and I just floated around. It was, it was fantastic. It's amazing. You can't sink. That's because nothing in that sea is alive. It's dead. It has no vegetation. It has no fish. There is nothing in it that is alive. It's kind of an eerie feeling, thinking there's no fish in here. You, you almost in your mind trick yourself that something's gonna, something's gonna get me. No, there's nothing in there, it's dead. It's a dead sea, you know why? Because it has no outlet. It only allows water in. The only way water gets out is through evaporation. There is no outlet to the dead sea. And this is a great picture of our relational life. If all we ever become are reservoirs to receive the kindness and the love of other people, then we are going to be like a dead sea. We are going to end up repelling anything life-giving because we don't have an outlet. But if we will become like the Sea of Galilee, if you and I will be relational people, that when God gives us a blessing, we turn it back in thanks. We turn it back in blessing to others. We become a living body of water and we actually fulfill what Jesus told that woman at the well. If you drink of the water that I give, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And when you are a life-giving stream, when your life is so vibrant in relationships, other people want to be close to you. Why do people wanna follow celebrities in the millions and millions? It's because they are in relationship. They are connected, well-connected with other people. Christians should be the most relational and most well-connected people to their circle. I'm not talking about the most popular or have the most following. I'm saying that we should be so attractive to the world because of our relationship with God, because our life is teeming with all kinds of good and vegetation and, and all kinds of, of uh, blessing because we have an outlet. We're not just hoarding it all in, but we're letting it go. We are simply a conduit of blessing in relationship for others offering a cold drink of water to someone who is in need. Father, I thank you for giving us the open door of relationship that you showed us that rules, yes, they're important, but they're not the prominent thing. That being in connection with you, worshiping you in spirit and truth, that is what is most important. And that if we love you and we love others, what will happen is, We'll make right decision when it comes to the rules and the relationships of our life. Now, God, draw us close in fellowship. Draw us close in relationship with you and one another. And may this be a tenant, a core value that we operate in. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.